This is Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Join us for this special edition cross-promotion episode as yours truly sits down with the folks at the World History Podcast, On Top of the World, and we talk about teaching Southeast Asia in a global context. Welcome to On Top of the World, a World History Podcast. I'm Dave Eaton. And I'm Matt Derwinski. And today, our topic du jour is something we haven't touched on really yet in this podcast. Our topic today is Southeast Asian history. And we have a special guest with us today. Our guide. Our guide to this (laughs) subject. (laughs) Dr. Eric Jones, professor of history at Northern Illinois University and author of the recently published Wives, Slaves, and Concubines, History of the Female Underclass in Dutch Southeast Asia. Boom. Eric, welcome, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Long time listener. (laughs) (laughs) Eric, if if, if you don't know, Eric has has written the theme music for our show. So thank you for finally being being a guest. So we're going to talk about Southeast Asia. Tell us about you and Southeast Asia. Why did you find this area interesting this topic interesting what brought you to the subject yeah i guess in a nutshell you know i i grew up in a in a very small place in uh the mountain fastness of uh, of wyoming borders of yellowstone and uh which you of course naturally think like that's very southeast asia and uh <laughs> no but i i uh didn't travel a lot but always wanted to and uh, you know to be honest, National Geographic magazine, like we had, I I, I consumed f- front to back every mm. edition for for more than a decade, and every time, uh, and I was interested in all of it, but Southeast Asia and especially especially Indonesia, Bali uh, was was this yeah. this. It seemed like the most different place from where I was from, and <laughs> and. Uh, I don't think you were that far off. <laughs> <It> was, Ocean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Beaches, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and and so and so it it kind of uh, when I when I when I graduated, it kind of had an opportunity to uh, just save money and like I'm going to go to Southeast Asia, and I was overwhelmed with you know I I remember very distinctly got off a plane like jet lag, you know this is like I'm old guys pre internet. You know, you have no, you really have no idea what you're getting into or what you can't like do. It's all kind of on the ground research, uh, kind of as you well. You don't even know how to hail a cab or anything. No, no, like no, that. nothing. You're sort of just there. Yeah. So I get there and like folks are nice, but I, you know, I, I don't speak, I don't speak Indonesian. I don't speak Javanese. And so I, I somehow kind of, you know, I have these, I have these pictures that I had brought uh, from the magazine about like Borobudur and Prambanan, the these 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 great majestic yeah. uh, Hindu Buddhist temples in in Southeast Asia, and so they're like, oh well, you know, you want to go here. Um, so from Jogjakarta, it's not far from those sort of great those monuments, and uh, so I'm I'm there in front of uh, Prambanan Temple, beautiful, gorgeous place, and there's a there's a Wayang show, Wayang Kulit, uh, with with gamelan orchestra. And Are like, these the giant the, puppets, yeah, the, shadow the shadow puppets, puppets. yeah, Ooh. yeah, the uh, which you guys will be interested. There's a new Star Wars. They've made the Star Wars characters, the Malay puppeteers. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put a link. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> wow. But that's an aside. 
Matt has to take a moment. <laughs> oh, hold on. <laughs> Catch hold his on. breath. <laughs> I'll be back in 12 parsecs. <laughs> so I'm watching this incredible with, you know, with, with these epic tales from uh, Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and which I then knew nothing about. And then this music washing over you. If you've ever heard Gamelon, it's, uh, it's, it's so different than Western orchestral tradition, and, but, it, but it's easily as complicated and as... It's uh, uh, it's beautiful, and I just that my I remember I remember sitting next to like his family, and it was also like kind of an eight hour affair of like, hey, let's we're, we're gonna s- strap in and watch this <laughs> puppet show for you know, and they're, and they're trying to like gesture like here's what's going on, and here's you know um you know in kind of limited English, and like, I remember my like, brain like breaking like there, I all of this existed, and I had no idea that it does, and there must be how many worlds out there must exist that I have no idea about that are equally as like incredible and fascinating. And it set me on like, I've got to know these languages. I've got to know this people. I've got to know where all of this comes from. Like it just, just overwhelm, overwhelming kind of like omnivorous hunger to, to know and to, to understand and to, and that kind of travel bug wanderlust, you know, was, was, was exponentially kind of ignited and I kind of never stopped um, wanting to figure out the region and wanting to to research and talk about it and take people there and friends and family so it's yeah it really caught the bug so were you in university when this was going on uh this is this is this is pre-university and then during and so then at uh, uh university i decided to so to hawaii and started to uh, um i studied um indonesian wait did you study with jerry bentley I, di- I did have a class for Jerry Bentley. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, some he, world history cred right there. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, some 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 street cred, esteemed uh, lineage. Yeah, yeah. Jerry is a Jerry is a great. He was a great force there at Hawaii. It was really lucky. I was at BYU Hawaii and then at University of Hawaii, and those places have um, like especially like with Bentley's built the world history program, which you of course we famously know about. But you know the. Southeast Asia programs, the Andayas, especially Leonard and Barbara, have have and others have created these kinds of uh, really massive centers, and that the it's a perfect marriage for that world history program and and kind of the Asia and Southeast Asia programs. If you want to know those languages, if you want to, you're you're halfway to the region anyway. You know, it, it there's I got really lucky that way having those kinds of convergences. And yeah, so, so, so started, you know, spending, spending summers in language programs and, uh, and it kind of snowballed from there. I mean, I was lucky enough to be, to have some time in Indonesia before the fall of, of Suharto. It was kind mm-hmm. of, a, it was, a, you know, those were interesting kind of, it's a, such a, it seems like a different place now. So yeah, it, from, from early on kind of through the, through my entire undergrad, I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Fascinating story. Great answer. Thinking about history we as world historians can often get focused on a couple regions early history it might be the middle east and the mediterranean in the classical era europe in the early modern or the atlantic area in the the beginning of the modern and and uh, maybe china gets in there somewhere but but southeast asia is never never sort of the number one region of our focus what we'd really like for you to do is to help us change that well and i i actually can put in a more personal plea Mm. i in my world history course i do get 
Borobudur, 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 yeah, Borobudur. I do get Borobudur in there. It is part of my Buddhism spreads across Asia class, yeah, yeah. and that's it. I never get back to it. It is the it, it, it is the region that I touch on once in the 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 twenty eight classes that I have, and it's hard to do. It, it's a it's a bit of a struggle, right? I I think. I, I teach African history, and so African history, I'm always aware of it being left out of world history, and I always feel appalled when I discover <laughs> that it's not in there in someone's <laughs> course or not playing a major role. But I think in a lot of ways, Southeast Asia is almost worse off. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize you know, how many people are living in Southeast Asia, how important a role it's had on things like global trade. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, comment maybe on, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I know, and as someone who also, you know, teaches world history, like it's, it's, it's not easy to, to, to try to figure out to, to coverage and, and, and then, and maybe that's, that's not the, the perfect way to approach it. Like I have to cover all, you know, every place and, and, and all times because you're not going to do it well. But I, I think a case could be made for Southeast Asia, not just for, because we have to cover every region, but it's really important. It's it, it could be it could be a linchpin for wedding together um, themes in 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 world history. It's where I think a lot of it uh, really the, the the things that we big questions today that we ponder. I think Southeast Asia is ground zero for a lot of those and, and examples. Some of those questions. <laughs> Example. We're all gonna pounce on you now. Like. I'm gonna keep you waiting. No. Um, you can't just tease us <laughs> like that, man. Like, so I mean, I'm this. I'm personally invested. I'm doing some research on this, but the I think of much of what you love or hate about the way the world works today. Um, think of Chipotle. <laughs> sort of the 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 line of where you put different things on burritos. Yeah, that's how I. Come on, that's guys. what I love about the world today. Oh, that's what you the love. Line. Okay, good. Yeah, the line. I was going to say. Oh no, fast hey, casual. Hey, yeah. Hey, hey, yeah, fast casual. Yeah, fast casual. Twenty four seven. Yes. Love it. Every day. Yeah. We truly live in an age of miracle and wonder, don't It's we? a miracle. You can have it your way. Yeah, um, I, can. <laughs> I think Southeast Asia has... Um, so uh, w- th- There's things that you love. Um, what are some of the things you hate about the world, Matt? <laughs> about the um, way the world works today. Perhaps uh, bigger, in a bigger sense. Uh, suffering of millions of okay. people everywhere i don't know uh, structural like, inequality uh, structural <laughs> yeah let's go with that let's go with that uh, so like the the um, um you know it's very very simple things like one example of the joint stock company you think of the way that the way that finance capital works today like it, it's it's based on that model or or the multinational corporation those hmm. two things right there they they're they're they're, they're they start in Southeast Asia, they start as the Dutch East India Company or the Fring de Ostenisa Company. We will, we will vac you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Wow. <laughs> the VOC is uh, this incredible, uh, incredibly influential part of what kicks off the, this this new way of, of exploiting resource exploitation, of dividing up wealth, of procuring it and uh, maybe later I can give just a few examples of how it does that and and in the way it operates. But Southeast Asia, longer than any place in the world, I think has been in what we think of a in in modern uh, flow of of commerce of of people has been the crossroads for that uh, for that phenomenon. Whether it's those Buddhist pioneers who are coming across 
on their way to to seek from China to seek the sacred text of India mm-hmm. and bring them back, and and stopping and creating these incredible edifices of, in Hindu Buddhist kingdoms, or merchants from Arab, Persian, Indian, Chinese, Southeast Asian, all coming together in this this place, this incredible crossroads and entrepot, and then taking those goods back and forth. I mean, it's it's not an exaggeration to say it's the reason Columbus got in a boat. He's he's looking for mm. the Indies, right? He, 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 that they're... Well, that and yeah. raising Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, he, that's a, he's a torchbearer for that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it uh, it uh, uh, it's this it's this it's this pull, um, and a lot of a lot of the a lot of the whether it's whether it's ethnic diversity, religious diversity, those 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 questions have been being worked out in Southeast Asia for a long time. And so modern, uh, I would say, my kind of post nine eleven interest in Islam. They're mm. like, hey, this is weird. Like Southeast Asia looks different. Like Islam, that is the product of a kind of progressive tendency of multicultural, multi-religious thinking that has gone on in an, in a, in this in this insanely diverse place for for centuries, and so so we, I think it's a it's a it's a laboratory in which a lot of these things can be thought about. For example, and I think we as Southeast Asianists need to do a lot better job of giving uh, folks out there examples of, of how they could do this and perhaps to make a plug for for our, one of the things that we do at I'm a associate professor at Northern Illinois University in the history department there but I'm also the assistant director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies and the center is it's a national resource center or an, an NRC which is part of the uh, the Title VI program of the Department of Education, which funds Area Studies Center, you know, kind of a handful of them. There, there, there are many across the uh, in, in in North America, but the Department of Education funds a handful of them, and we're fortunate to be one of those. And part of our mission is to be a national resource, to to disseminate, to increase the the, the content of of teaching at at high school, at community colleges, and my own kind of personal ideas to help world history have an easier time thinking about this region that we that we know is important that we think is important and useful and giving them ideas for how they can do that and so i mean i can i happy to say more about the center and the way that works in and say more we will um when we return from a short break stay tuned with dr eric jones We're back. Great conversation at the break over uh, some some deep historical topics. Did Courtney Love do it? Yes. <laughs> Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain, are the police hiding something? Inquiring minds want to know. We also want to know some specific <laughs> historical examples from Southeast Asia that we as teachers can can take from. Let's start off, you know, for example, when we're talking about up to the early modern era, trade empire spread of religions i know in my class when we're talking about those things i'm usually in the mediterranean before 1500 what are some cool things from southeast asia that we can i think i think a great way and to not also to depict it as this isolated thing because my sort of point has been it's it's not at all an isolated part of of the world and so and I think for for high school teachers and 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 the college crowd who are trying to think about 
uh, history or geography as well. Like I think the monsoons um, are are a great kind of vehicle for thinking about the way that geography helps shape historical patterns in a, in a region. You know, you have the of course the Himalayas driving these north south wind systems, and in the same way that in the Atlantic world, the those kind of wind patterns they make them go. You know, to right. to actually run into Brazil and and you know make their way around uh, Africa. Uh, in 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 Asia, they in monsoon Asia, they go north mm-hmm. and south. And what, what that means is that you can be a porcelain merchant in, in Guangzhou and, um, you know, you want to traffic your, your wares. And so what you can get the best price for those, not locally, by, by selling them internationally. So you wait for the winds to shift south, you get in your boat, and you go down to Malacca. You know, it's sort of mid-1400s here. And uh, your buddy from the Coromandel Coast of India uh, maybe he's bringing textiles down from uh, from Masli Putnam, and and you meet in Malacca. You exchange calicos for porcelain, and you take those back home and sell them, and you get a you get a much better price. So this the the monsoons, in, in addition to India, China, Japan, the, this whole region, the way that oh. the, the those those winds allow it's it's an you know, we take for granted in the era of steam travel and post Suez. The, the the way that those facilitate. And I think that we don't have definitive numbers on this, but the amount of, of traffic through um, waterland routes, we talk about Silk Road a lot as world historians, but like it's 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 absolutely eclipsed by like maritime traffic just because it's obviously easier to yeah. transport. And I have a question for you because uh, the East African coast is also influenced by the same monsoon patterns <laughs> where you have yeah. very specific winds for six months a year and then there's like about a month advantageous of yeah and then it changes and it means you don't have to be don't have to have particularly sophisticated shipbuilding technology to sail with the wind at your back but it does mean that you have to stay and wait for the yes. winds to change and this actually is going to be key to creating the swahili culture which blends a lot of persian uh hindu and arab elements uh together along the coast because these merchants couldn't just take off again now was there, was there a similar dynamic on the eastern side of the indian ocean where people might have to stay in say malacca for for a few few months before returning home might have to establish long-term relationships with families who live there anything like now, that you want a quick research story that's an exact oh yes uh, so so they hit on us they, these 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 merchants they did they they came and they waited out the monsoons and then what often happened is they intermarried with with local women and uh, these women became really important bearers of. Uh, so you, you you might entrust. So there this particular case, a woman named Siti, who was purchased on the slave auctions in in Jakarta yeah, in the early 18th century. Raiding has has by the by the sea gypsies has has bought her into captivity. She's sold, but she's this very Wait, able merchant. The sea gypsies. Yes. <laughs> We're gonna get back to that. Oh my <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, they're 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 an incredible. Students love that. There's there's an entire culture of stateless peoples in and around Southeast Asia. Oh, the Orang Laut uh, are the is the what they call them or the or the Bajau, um, who are uh, these incredible populations who 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 live entirely. Kevin Costner Waterworld. It's a real thing. <laughs> they live in, entirely on Mind boats. Is being blown. <laughs> Just like it was by that movie. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yes. True history. Paper. Paper. So much paper. <laughs> it's way better than the movie. God, that was terrible. <laughs> okay. Continue. Continue. <laughs> and uh, CT. So, so CT is uh, this uh, um, uh, this very able merchant, and so an, an Arab merchant 
comes over and uh, I think he's pretty saltpeter, I think is his kind of main trade. And he he's warehousing it in, in Jakarta. And then what he does is he goes out and, you know, for the for the rides the monsoon backs and and facilitates his trade and business. And CT is stays home and all the other traders that are that are camping out there or their or their or their wives or concubines who are running the really running these international shipping firms at their at their the, these home office. They're they're making deals They're They're continuing to, um, you know, the, the, you don't know when. Um, when your when your friends from Daishima, Japan might roll up and and you, so 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 she's there to facilitate this, and mm-hmm. um, so it's this it's this incredibly sophisticated network that that uh, th- there's there are important issues of like female auto- the 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 incredibly high status that women have in Southeast Asia vis a vis other world regions at the period which is which is not without asterisk but is a, is, sure. is is a, is a very real phenomenon to be sure uh, side note ct falls gets a toothache falls under the spell of a, a dukun uh, a medicine man hmm. who uh, ties an amulet to her which uh, according to her makes her steal all of her master's possessions and try to pawn them to pawnbrokers throughout the region and she is hauled into court and uh, deposed and uh, interrogated oh. uh under torture to extract oh, no. a confession so uh Though of course, is that where our records come from? Yes, and these are all to be found in wives, sleeves, and concubines. Ah, okay, <laughs> no, right. but we'll but yeah, so these, these these court these so but but in in these you get you get really vivid examples of the way that uh, and that the way that affects the culture. I mean, that part of the multicultural mix that Southeast Asia is has a lot like the Swahili coast is this. These aren't just ephemeral visitors. These are people who are staying, and um, and these kind of multinational corporations that later the European are they're, they're, those they they're becoming heavily Asianized, and um, uh, to the extent that the the, the home officers are worried about the way that the, the the cultures of these companies are becoming they're 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 so much more Asian than they are European, which becomes in the in the in the in the, in the racial racialized uh 19th century that heightened separation between white and and non-white those 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 like we see like british india is a good example those Mm. become exacerbated in the rest of southeast in european colonies but um it's it's a it's a it's a place where these things play out you know i don't know if you do i'm I'm happy to to give some links about the the, oh yeah the the spice trade and all these other things yeah that uh that or that might be good resources for teachers well and this brings me to my next question which would be as we move forward in time towards say the age of revolutions uh yeah. something from say roughly 1750 to 1900 that time period any good examples of southeast asia fitting into maybe some of the broader trends in world history class or broader themes in world history class anything along those lines that you might uh might suggest yeah i, I do i think that um more so than mainland Southeast Asia, modern day Indonesia and the Philippines have a much earlier presence of of Europeans there. As demand shifts away into like cash crop, uh, a kind of a sugar, tobacco, indigo, uh, coffee. If you want to look at the way that empire goes from being this kind of ephemeral, you know, merchants to direct territorial control and right. and governing the everyday lives of individuals, they start governing in a direct territorial way in the 19th century and and they learned much there there's the the slave culture in north america it in the same period 
Mm-hmm. In, in Indonesia, for example, in, in Java and in Sumatra especially, the, pl- the plantation economy, which is known as the cultivation system, is this incredibly onerous burden that is put on everyday Indonesians to produce a fifth of their cash crop. And they tell them which crops they have to grow f- to, to give to the state. And uh, something like you know 40% of the Dutch GNP is sucked right out of Indonesia. So um, if you're looking at the way that... I assume the state (laughs) sets the price on these things, too, that they're willing to pay. Oh, exactly. And sets the amount. So no concern given for how arable your land is. Like you owe us, you know, if you have five hectares, one hectare should produce this much coffee. Ergo, you have to give us. And if you can't, that's your problem. So maybe you have to actually cultivate four-fifths of your land to give that one-fifth of what you owe. And mass famine... And then more corporate forms of of ownership are seen as as uh, as progressive, but I I would argue also even more onerous to to the indigenous way folk ways. And so, um, if you if you want to look at the sort of the the mission creep of of the European presence there, there's full kind of integration as cash crop producers for for the global economy that that happens, and that the seeds of angry anti colonial resistance come out of that. Well. And to go back to Dave's original question, I mean, I think as world historians, uh, we can't teach the age of revolutions without teaching the age of imperialism or second European empire, because they go yeah. they go perfectly right. together. Well, and things like gumboat diplomacy, I, I mean, this was pretty famous yeah. part of how the British are able to occupy, I believe it was Burma, right? Sending yeah. gunboats up the Absolutely. Irrawaddy River. And protecting their of, teak <laughs> trade. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Just using that as uh, a laboratory for that form of violent yeah. imperialism. The French up the Mekong, the narrative of, of the of the Enlightenment empire is is ignored in that. And it and it's it's not just a dark side. It's 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 completely part of the. Uh, part of the, the tale. Okay, on to a new topic. One of the most important things in any world history class has to be the spread of Islam and the connections that the Islamic religion uh, fostered. I know almost in every world history class, this is a topic of several right. lessons, but considering, as you mentioned, that uh, you know Southeast Asia has a huge population, and a yeah. lot of those people are Muslim historically and today. I feel like there's not enough Islam while including Southeast Asia in our in our curriculum. Yeah, I think and it's it's even more important today in terms of current headlines about the way we're thinking about Islam. I mean, here's a little here's a little factoid: there are more Mu- there are more Muslims on one island in Southeast Asia than there are in the entire Middle East. There are more Muslims on Java than there are in the Middle East together. So Islam has its has its home there, but its heart, I think, is 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 in Asia, in, in India and in and in Southeast Asia and in South Asia. So the way that the way that Islam comes to Southeast Asia is unique. It comes by trade and, mm-hmm. and merchant. It's there's constantly folks from all regions of the world coming to um, and Malacca is a good example. So the Sultan of Sultan of Malacca, it's one of the greatest entrepot in the world because hmm. it uses Sharia, but as a multicultural trade tool to provide a transparent legal system for redress of grievances that you're, that hmm. if, if you're, you know, you can't just um, have your commodities seized, you have, you have a redress. If we're thinking about the way that a progressive Islam might look and function, it's happening right now in Southeast Asia. Okay, I have one final question for you before you're off the hot seat here. This one final question is the one way that I think Southeast Asia makes its way into world history classes and into my students' imaginations. And this is part of Southeast Asia that 
is mentioned occasionally at the beginning of the term as the three events that shaped world history, my students hmm. often will point to the Vietnam War. Huh. Yeah. And I, I would I would assume that in some of the cases where Southeast Asia makes it into a world history class, part of that yeah. may involve uh, this really, uh, you know, critical Cold War battle going on there. And I was wondering if you could sort of very briefly maybe offer a suggestion of something, something that world history teachers might not know about the Vietnam War that could change the way they teach it. Something a little bit unique from the sort of standard American narrative. Yeah, I think I think that, um, uh, and it's a good question. The seeing it not as a sort of a, an exclusive part of American history, mm-hmm. but part of part of uh, to to bundle it with nationalism. And the sort of the the story of the Cold War, but thinking about the way that the U.S. is incapable of seeing him as a nationalist first, which he was, and a, and a um, you know a kind of communist second. A book recommendation, um, mm-hmm. Mark Bradley's Imagining Vietnam, is for using Vietnamese sources to to look at the way that they perceive Americans and the, the way that they imagine and understand. You know, why why is Ho Chi Minh in 1945 and 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 all the Vietnamese carrying around American flags? Why does the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, word for word, the the Side Declaration, arts, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the words of Thomas Jefferson, yeah. like the the power of that? I think I like to think of it as as the the kind of imperialism 2.0 like you after 1945 you can't just go in and hmm. justify to the rest of the world that we're taking these places over you have to have a different justification and mask for doing that and so um these other ways of intervening covertly and overtly become a big part of that do you think you could go further with that and i feel like southeast asia would be a great regional focus lens when we're kind of moving from global to regional levels uh, if we're talking about World War One or World War Two, yes. or as we just talked about, or the Cold War, because often when we we talk about those as global mm-hmm. events, and then when we go down to regional examples, we often go to the United States or or Europe or Russia. I, I think a, a good example. Students really love they you know if you if you talk about like hey you know December seventh, nineteen forty one which uh, is the day that the, South, the, the the Japanese attack Southeast Asia simultaneously. It's this incredible, one of the great master strokes of warfare. They, they, they conquer all of Southeast Asia in like a few weeks. They, wow. they, they, they expose these... Singapore, <laughs> the impossible yeah, fortress. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, on bicycle, I yeah. might add, from behind. Like, like, the, 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 the Bicycle the, attacks. <laughs> the, the, those bike lanes. Yeah, the... the, yeah, the, the <laughs> never those roads in Malaya. But like, <laughs> there's incredible... Um, Not Indonesia, <laughs> though. They couldn't outbike the Dutch. <laughs> no, yeah. No, okay. That's but, true. But Singapore, yeah, yeah, sure. Touche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The kind of mental break—it's hard to—it's hard to, to think of a, of, a, of a bigger paradigm shift that when Burmese and Cambodians and you know Balinese have have for their entire lives have have been imagined and been taught that these connection between the colony and metropole is permanent, uh, their power is unassailable, their their status is inferior as mm-hmm. as indigenous, and mm-hmm. suddenly these fellow Asians. Uh, from Japan come over and blow over with with very little effort, wipe away centuries of rule and this kind of this moment that that is really a beautiful in, in the in the journals and the and the records of of like I you know power was just 
laying there on the street waiting for someone to pick it up is like one of Ho's famous statements, hmm. you know, that like, like, or, or watching a, a Japanese officer like slap around like a British, you know, police officer in Mandalay is just, it, it's so unthinkable. The Japanese and Southeast Asia, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's an, it's part of World War II that we all cover and students are really fascinated about hmm. thinking about their, their lightning war in Southeast Asia and the way that that provides this opening for uh, that those simmering fires of anti-colonial independence. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a fait accompli now that those European forces are out of the way and it will never go. It can never go back, um, which is why covert intervention <laughs> it, later in the Cold War becomes the sort of the go to means of ob- yeah the go to way <laughs> of invading Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Burma, Indonesia. <laughs> wow. Great answer. Great answer. All right. I have a I have a wild card question. Uh, so in one we haven't, uh, you know, discussed beforehand. Your book is a history of uh, a big history, right, of of an underclass. And yep. you, you, you teach Southeast Asian history. You teach world history. I find I think one of the things world historians struggle with, right, is we can we're good at teaching about the the rise and fall of empire or shifts in in global economics and trade but um you know is it tough to teach kind of that history from below in in your world history classes is it do you find you this is something i can do in my in my monograph but when i do my world history class how do you work that in in your in your big survey classes it is not. It is not easy. You know, the the this this one of one of the central questions of Southeast Asianists is the possibility of an autonomous history. How do we write mm. a history of a, of a of a region and and you know Africa based something when you have sources that are maybe largely from outsiders or you have you know in Southeast Asia's case it's often that the 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 medium for the the archive disintegrates like lontar right. a palm leaf or something so you're you're reliant more on European sources that to try to to try to get at uh, voices from below from inside and so I think we have to be we have to be creative and those of us who are doing the primary research have to have to to look in places you know like criminal records for example are places or or colonial archives uh, legal systems are places where those voices against their will are brought in if you if you don't just want kind of diplomatic correspondence if you want actually how how everyday people experience their world we we need a better job of looking at those sources and then and then translating and getting them out there uh, so that people can have kind of uh, examples from from below of of how these of how these forces are are, are affecting the world impacting them yeah, and if I can speak to this, in an earlier podcast, uh, I recorded a lecture that I gave at a uh, at a conference, and in that lecture, I talked about sort of five possible topics, and those five possible topics, one of the ones I mentioned is the life of Sarah Bartman, and using the life of an individual woman to kind of trace the development of scientific racism, mm. and sort of trying to use an individual life to okay, Natalie Seaman Davis kind of mm. using yeah. using kind of micro history as a and, and bear, I think yeah. And, yeah and I think I think it is a very viable method I think students really respond to it I think they like to be able to put an actual name to a theory and no I I really really agree you know I, I we think... need to be aware and we need to be looking for sources that can open these doors that can give us these ways to maybe name people who are a part of larger trends of you know, being disempowered, of being uh, stripped of their voice. And I really do enjoy reading stuff that tries to provide those voices back 
even if in the case of Sarah Bartman, we really can't reconstruct her voice. Um, the only documents we have of it are sort of police interviews yeah. done in a second language that have been recorded much later. And, you know, it's not perfect, but it gives us something. And I think in that uh, in that effort that we make, it can make a big uh, difference. And, and, and I think I think, you know, students students respond to kind of this big man of history approach, which is yeah. which is which is which we're not probably fans of. But but we can that 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 compelling kind of the narrative of one person we can we doesn't have to be the big man it can be little woman it can, you know we can we can think about uh, a Sarah Bartman or a CT von Makassar excellent great great answers from from both of you all right and i think with that we we are way over time here so i think recommendations it's time for us to begin to wrap up so our last re thing recommendations right <laughs> check it <laughs> recommendation let's do it let's do it <laughs> okay i'll go first here and it's uh it's a book that uh involves southeast asia a little bit tangentially i don't know if it's the best history book out there but it is a lot of fun to read great lesson plan it's by a guy called i believe it's david keys and it the title i hope i'm remembering this right is catastrophe and Catastrophe is a book about what seems to be an episode of global climate change in the 500s AD, sometime around 535. And he does uh, an analysis of all sorts of primary documents, uh, environmental records, ice cores, all this, to try and figure out what happened that caused this very brief episode of violent climate change uh, uh ridiculous weather all this kind of stuff and spoiler alert he finds that maybe it was krakatoa because it's always krakatoa, krakatoa. Uh, the southeast asian hmm. volcano that has yeah. had a pretty serious <laughs> impact on global climate on on a couple of occasions in this case he feels that there may have been a uh, detonation or an eruption uh <sighs> on krakatoa around 5 30 he claims that it ah. leads to the emergence of Islam, to the the collapse mm. of a variety of empires. He has okay. a whole like, and okay. again, he's absolutely reaching. This is why I don't yes. say it's a good history book, but it's a lot of fun if you're looking for someone doing history as kind of a, a mystery. Someone sort of yeah. trying to take a huge <laughs> array of sources, not okay. necessarily knowing the answer, but having some fun with it. I really liked it. He includes some uh, uh, Southeast Asian oral histories written down later as a way of trying to identify if a major eruption is okay. recorded in those. It's, it's okay. a really cool book. You'll have to check it out. Okay. David Key's Catastrophe. Nice. Uh, my recommendation is, I don't know, Eric, uh, is is South China in Southeast Asia? I feel like uh, kind of sometimes it, it's very it, it closely it connected. Definitely, okay. yeah. Well, my, my recommendation is White Lotus Rebels and South China Pirates, Crisis and Reform in the Qing Empire by Wenxing Wang. Super cool book. Um, I'm glad I recommended it because we talked about, uh, you know, thinking about the age of revolutions. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we can, as world historians, in that period of, uh, you know, beginning of the 19th century uh, crisis, we should be talking about everywhere. And China's got some some really interesting things going on uh, that, uh, uh, yeah, it's a great book. Just started it, but loving it. My recommendation is uh, James Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed, An Anarchist History of Upland Southeast right, Asia. Oh, Scott. Asia yeah. First. yeah. Ooh, ooh. Oh. We've got our Ben Andersons Wait, and ben our, Anderson. uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the body of work is incredible and for all these folks, but but this book is everyone should read. It it flips history upside down and instead of seeing the the primitive peoples that the that um you know the major world religions are trying to incorporate and to to civilize, it looks at uh, it uses Southeast Asian examples, but it could it could expand globally to think about the way that these people don't want to be governed. Like they're they they know exactly what civilization is, and they're not interested. They well, very I've used this yeah. in terms yeah. of understanding uh, nomadic pastoralists on the edge of yeah. the colonial state and then the post colonial. It state. upends yeah. anthropology. These cultures hmm. might be entirely constructed to be resistant. Uh, Teflon to 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 the state and its view and its control that uh, there's not this kind of history from from sort of the primitive to the to the more advanced but these peoples are in, are in fact responding to um, the overtures put it to put it nicely of the of the state and and choosing forms of agriculture of family structure kinship networks that that are are, are resistant to to this and so it, it's a bit of a mind blower I think. Wow. This anarchist history of um, up in Southeast Asia that uh, whether you're thinking about, you know, Appalachia or or or, or <laughs> Hill you know, folk. rural Spain, you know, it's it's a, it's a way to uh, to think about um, how resistance might can be constructed differently. Oh man, I've I've got to read this. I'm a huge fan of James Scott. Seeing like a state yeah. is one of my favorite books read in the past two years. But yeah, and it was. Uh, the Art of Not Being Governed. The Art of Not Being Governed, James Scott. All right. We will have links to all of those recommendations and some of the other things we talked about in this podcast. Our website. Check it out. On top of the world, history.com is your website. Daka. At Pod History is our Twitter. And on top of the world, history podcast is our Facebook site. What's your MySpace? Hey, hey, hey. hey. We weren't around no. quite that long ago. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's it for today. That's it. Eric, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. Hey, thanks, folks.